1 Peter and chapter 2. I am going to read from verse 21 through to the end of the chapter. And then having done so, we will pray and then we'll dig into the text. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text today, Lord, my prayer is firstly that all those who need to hear it would hear it. Pray if any haven't made it, Lord, that they would catch up online. I pray that our hearts, all of us, myself included, would just be humble and ready to receive, ready to be corrected and rebuked by your word when necessary. And Lord, that as we embark on this incredibly important and valuable and life-changing text, that nothing I'd say would be an error, nothing that needs to be said would be omitted, and that you would be glorified through your transforming work by your Holy Spirit, through your word. That we might really be different because of our time in this text. And Lord, if there are those here who need to really be challenged and need to really see life differently and be changed by this text, Lord, I pray that would happen. through tears if necessary. Because, Lord, we need to follow your Son. We need to walk in his steps. And may we do so with knee bowed and tongue confessing. And may all glory go to him. Amen. Amen. Okay. I have been bigging up these texts. I'm, I'm truly uh, so happy to see so many of you here today for it. We are embarking on a series of texts that I think are absolutely life-changing. We will be looking today at the example of Christ. Next Sunday, we're going to be uh, doing a, uh, a brief look at an overview of the beginning of chapter 3, Husbands and Wives, looking at the foundation of marriage in Ephesians and seeing how this section today links with that section. And we're kind of going to use it all as a foundation to then, at the beginning of December, dig into wives and then the week after husbands. And I think that, I think that understanding this is so key. One of my greatest fears as a pastor is to, is to teach week in, week out to the same group of people. And for that same group of people to sing the same songs, hear the sermons, and not change. I mean, honest to God, if, if, if we were to, to, to never grow again, but the people who were here were to change, if the people who were here were to see their lives become different because they're living out the text in ways that they haven't in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, then I would take that in a heartbeat over a church 10 times bigger. Because this is what matters. And today's text, today's text is something that is absolutely at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to walk as a Christian, and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
to be clear, today's text is the thing that distinguishes between people who play church and people who follow Jesus. It's nothing less than that. And so it is with an immense burden and a, 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 an awe of the text before me that we come to this passage. We've been looking in previous weeks how this section has been already dealing with the concept of submission. Submission to various authorities, to governments and to, to, from slaves to masters. And we, we apply that to various places in the household and in workplaces and what have you. And basically, in, in a summary form, what we've learned so far is that submission is not something that is an expression of weakness. It is not an expression of being lesser in any way, shape, or form. But rather, it is an expression of the trust that we have in a God who is both sovereign and good. That's what it is. We are placing ourselves under the authority of people who, in the case of governments and masters and what have you, are often people who are ungodly, unsaved, unjust, and uncaring. And we do so not because we're reckless, and not because we're stupid, and not because we don't have enough self-care, as these various articles that we get today would tell us. Not because we aren't removing ourselves from toxic situations. You're probably familiar with all this kind of lingo that is thrown about these days. No, we are placing ourselves under those authorities because though they may not care, and though they may not be good, there is a God who does care and who is good, who is sovereign over them all. And we trust him. I hope that became, in the last few weeks, abundantly clear. And as he ended that section on masters and slaves, he dealt with the elephant in the room very quite, kind of clearly and, and, um, and profoundly, saying, you know, well, you know, it's, it's, if you have someone who is in authority and they're treating you badly, by submitting, you're perhaps just increasing your suffering. Shouldn't we be, you know, waving placards and resisting, another favorite word today of the culture, resisting this oppression, that's another fa favorite word as well. See, all of these words are part of this culture. And, and in our culture today, there is a group of words. There is a group of words that are used. And, and those words are words that contain things. And I've got to be so careful here, because I don't want to belittle anything. They contain things that are important, are significant, and cannot be ignored and brushed aside. Okay? But nonetheless, when we have words thrown out like, you know, toxic and abusive, and all of these kind of words, they are so often used as machinery to try and prevent us from having to submit or to suffer. And what Peter has said to us very clearly is that suffering is our path. The entirety of this world is seeking to not suffer. Our culture in this country, in this time, in this day and age, perhaps more than any other time in human history, is making it its mission to ease suffering. We have people right now who are making it their business to try and essentially remove the, the, the freedom of speech because people might be oppressed and abused by us saying things that they don't agree with. We are coming into an era where people are taking the avoidance of suffering to astonishing and shocking new extents. And so this is what we are looking at today. That for us as Christians, the lack of avoidance of suffering, the willingness to submit even when it increases suffering, is the number one thing that distinguishes us as Christians. 
You hear that? It is not that you read your Bible. It is not that you wear a Christian t-shirt. It's not that they know that you go to church. And it's certainly not that you've got a fish on your bumper sticker. What will distinguish you as a Christian in this day and age more than any other is to not flee suffering. It is not a message that is often heard. It is not a message that is preached by the church. In fact, for so many churches, they they endure topical sermons week after week that are designed and constructed for the very purpose to prevent suffering. Oh, you're suffering in this area? Let me teach you a little bit about this so that your life can be better in this area. Let's teach you so your life can be better in that area. Well, listen, today's sermon is not going to teach you how to make your life better in one sense, though in another it will, but rather it's teaching us what to do and how to live in a way that honors Jesus Christ when everything is falling apart around us. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. There's so much in this text, so let's dig in. For to this you have been called. And so Peter, having said that, you know, we shouldn't, there's no credit for, for suffering when we deserve suffering, but he says it's a gracious thing. There's that repetition in verses 19 and again in verse 20, that in God's eyes, us having our eyes on God, it's a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, us looking at him, and then verse 20, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God, him looking at us, that it is a good thing when we suffer and endure for doing good. That's the key thing. We mentioned that and we emphasized that last time. We have to endure in the midst of suffering. You do good, you suffer for it, and you endure. Now the reason, and we touched on this last time, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do you know what you've been called to? Some people will talk about a calling in the sense of, you know, I believe I was called to, to pastoral ministry, to teaching. You've all, if you are believers, have gifts and you've been called to exercise those gifts as ministers. Some people feel they're called to be missionaries and will go off to distant lands and make great sacrifices. Some of you may feel called to your particular professions. And we, we use this term, calling. And some will say, well, I don't know what I'm called to as a Christian. Well, let me tell you this, clearly from the text, the one thing that we as Christians are all called to is to suffer. If we are going to be Christians, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are going to suffer. Paul said to Timothy, he says, if you seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You're not being persecuted? You're probably not seeking to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That's probably the problem. It's almost as if a lack of suffering and a lack of persecution is somehow a stain on you. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should sort of try and outrank each other. Oh, you know, you've had this disease. I've had that disease, you know. you've you've been thrown out for your faith here, I've been thrown out from two places for my faith. You know, that's not what we're talking about. But what we are saying is that suffering as Christians is natural and normative. It is part of our lives. And look why it is. Look at what the text says. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Leaving you an example so you may follow in his steps. Now listen, we in our circles talk a lot about why Jesus died. And there are those in more liberal churches, some who in fact probably aren't even believers themselves, who will say, well, Jesus' death was an example for us. And we quite rightly will say, no, 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 no. It's not that Jesus' death was merely an example. His death was there as an atonement. He died in our place for our sins. He was punished for our sins so that we would not have to be punished for them. 
But at the same time, he did die also as an example. And the picture here could not be any clearer. You have a picture of Jesus walking, and he's walking a path of suffering. Now, none of us need me to expand on that. We have, we have our Gospels. We're familiar, aren't we not, that Jesus, that his suffering started when he became someone who was a human being in a limited place, initially very limited, in a mother's womb. That he put aside his glory and majesty and came as a human, and that he grew and he submitted See, nothing lesser about submitting. Submitted to his parents, and he was uh, submitting himself to the law of God, and he grew as a man, and he suffered. And then we have what we call the passion, his path through suffering. Really, his path to suffering be- through suffering began at the beginning of his ministry. When he walks in the temple, and he turns everything over, and he causes this big fuss, and the, the, uh, the leaders... Of the, uh, of the temple, the religious leaders of the day, they knew why he was doing it. There was no question, why are you doing this? The only question was, on what authority do you do this? Who said you could do this? And he said, you want my credentials? Let me give you my credentials. Destroy this temple, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And by the way, if you're not familiar, that was a command. He is telling them, you go on, you go ahead, you kill me, and then we'll find out who's got the credentials to turn over a few tables. And they, on that one thing, although not much else, were obedient. And they looked from that day for opportunities to go to that path. And he walked that path, and he continued to frustrate them, and they eventually did what he said, and they destroyed the temple that was his body. And on the third day, he rose again. The suffering of Christ is a story that we are so familiar with and we know so well. And what's the picture here in the text? The picture is you and me walking behind. Have you ever seen a mother duck with her ducklings following? It's one of the most beautiful pictures in nature. You get the mother duck waddling along and you get all these little waddlers waddling behind. And they go where she goes. They follow where she goes because she is their protector, their provider. She is the one who is the shepherd and overseer of them. And so they follow. What Peter is saying is this. If you are Christians, then you are following Christ. And if you're following Christ, then this is the path that he walked. It doesn't mean that we seek out suffering, but it means that when we find it and when we face it, we endure it, and we endure it in the way that he's going to outline for us now. So let's have a look at what that is. So here's his steps. Here's what he did. And, And it's interesting that Peter doesn't focus on the passion per se, but he focuses on a few specifics, and he does so from Isaiah 53. Now, normally I would turn to Isaiah 53 and go through it in a huge amount of detail, um, but on this rare occasion I'm not, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Brian read it for us superbly this morning. Um, you know, it's one of those passages, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad Brian, he, he reads so well. Uh, it's like when you read John 1, you read Isaiah 53, and uh, you know, I could, I could just have him just finish and then start again, and finish and just start again, read it with the text in front of me, close my eyes, let it minister to me. It's just one of the most powerful passages in the entirety of Scripture. And in that passage, we see the suffering of the servant. In that passage, we see, we see the servant suffering for the sins of others, not for his own sin, he's without sin. We see the servant suffering unto death, and then we see the servant basically being restored and glorified post-death, which by implication has to mean a resurrection. Now, the reason I don't want to turn there and go through all of that in detail 
is simply because I think there's a degree of familiarity with it anyway, but also because Peter is trying to focus on a few specific points from that text. Normally, the reason I go back to the Old Testament text and I open it up and I read it is because you're not familiar with it that I'm going to show you, look at what this text is. Look at the context of this text. Look at what it's saying. We got our conclusions from the text. Now let's go back to the New Testament and let's ap- apply what we know about the Old Testament text to what's being said in the New Testament. But here in this passage, I think we're all familiar with what is being said in Isaiah 53. None of you here, I don't think, need me to convince you that he's speaking of Christ. I think we know that it's speaking about him being without sin, him suffering for the sake of sin, and him suffering to death, and him being resurrected and restored by God. I think we know that. The issue for us this morning is, why is, or what parts of that is Peter specifically applying to the saints here? Because sometimes we need to say, okay, he's pointing to this passage generally, So what's the point of the passage as a whole? For example, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you hyper-focus on the being forsaken, you miss the whole point. You need to look at the entirety of Psalm 22. But I think here it's quite different in that, yes, Jesus suffered generally, verse 21. Yes, we need to generally follow in his steps. But Peter here is actually focusing on four Um, four or five, depending on how you count them, specific things that Jesus is, uh, that is said about Jesus in Isaiah. And we are going to look at those specific things and see how they apply to us. Because what we're trying to see here, okay, big picture as we go into the specifics, what we're trying to see here is this. We as Christians have to suffer And the way in which we suffer is more than anything else going to distinguish us as Christians in this society. And as I said to you a few weeks back, all of this is leading through to the end of chapter 3, where Peter is going to talk about people coming to us and saying, why are you so strange? Why are you so different? And we are going to be strange, and we are going to be different, and we are going to be able to tell them about our hope in Christ But that question is going to come because of the way that we live in the face of suffering. This is where we distinguish ourselves. Right? Listen, if something really good happens to you, then rejoice. Be thankful. Rejoice. And we'll rejoice with you, right? The unbelievers will rejoice when something good happens to them too. The only distinction in our rejoicing over their rejoicing is we give thanks to God rather than giving thanks randomly to the universe, to nothing, just, oh, have gratitude, people say. Have gratitude in your, well, gratitude to who? To the universe? What a load of nonsense. The universe hasn't given me anything. God's given us everything, including the universe. And so... We need to understand that while we rejoice in the face of blessings, that's not what really distinguishes us. What really distinguishes us is how we behave in the midst of suffering. We need to follow Christ's example. You ready? Here are the the specific points of, uh, of how we behave in the face of suffering. Verse 22. He committed no sin. There you go. That's it, in a nutshell. In fact, that summarizes everything else that is to follow. Today's society is a society that this church doesn't seem, not this church, but the the church broadly, does not seem to know how to deal with. I'll I'll give you an example that's, that's directly applicable to this text. He committed no sin, okay? We live at a time when we have this incredible victim culture in the world today. Everybody's a victim. And on the one hand, the culture wants to say, oh, well, this person is a victim. This and that has happened to them. And therefore, of course, they're going to behave this way. That's just how it is. And, and the, the attributing of being a victim kind of somehow excuses people from the way that they behave and how they respond. But then there's another wing of the church, which is probably a lot more what we're familiar with, 
that will say, well, there's no such thing as a victim. And it's like, well, that is callous and uncaring, because clearly there are. Pick up the book of Job, for starters. And we need to come alongside people who are victims to various things that have happened to them, whether at their own fault or not. And we need to love them through it. Because it sucks to be a victim and it sucks to suffer. But at the same time, we don't want to give an excuse for sin. And I, and I, I am baffled by why the church seems to have, feel a need to jump into one camp you can, you know, you're excused for your behavior. Or another camp, there's no such thing as a victim. And not actually just say, you poor person, how horrific that this happened to you. Let's come alongside you and love you in the midst of this and serve you in the midst of this. But let's encourage you by serving you not to sin, as a, not to use this as an excuse to sin. Why is that complicated? I have no idea. I think sometimes there's people who, who don't want to tell hard truths at difficult times and on the other hand there are people who just have no empathy and are hard-hearted and don't want to be called out on that but anyway we are dealing exactly with that there are going to be times in your life where you are a victim where you suffer where things happen to you and you are treated badly and I want to say this so clearly okay when you weep it is our job to weep with you. It is our job to serve you in suffering. It is our job to love you. God forbid that this should ever be a church where you ever hear your pastor say anything as horrifically insensitive as there is no such thing as a victim. I get original sin and I understand it. But when something tragic happens in your life, that is not a sentence that any shepherd of your soul should ever speak or say. And I know that it happens a lot in our circles and you can tell I am not happy about it. There are times when you will suffer and you will never hear me say you're not a victim. You will have us as a church come alongside and minister to you, I hope and I pray. And I hope and I pray that if you're not getting the love that you need, that you have the courage to say so, so that we can do a better job of it. Because we have to love our brothers and sisters in the midst of their suffering. Is that clear enough? I really hope it is. But at the same time, it is never an excuse to sin. I know that it's harder. Let me be really clear on that. Let me be really clear on that. There are times when circumstances doesn't just make it emotionally and mentally harder, but actually makes it physiologically harder not to sin. You know what? You still got to not sin. There's never an excuse. But there must be an abundance of empathy for those who struggle. There has to be. Listen, if I said to you today, after church, we're all going to go and run a marathon. I'm not, by the way. You're safe. Don't worry. Then for each and every one of us, that would be exactly the same thing. A marathon is 26.2 miles. It's going to be the same for person A and the same for person B. The distance is the same. It doesn't change. It is an event that is a specific distance that does not change. Okay? But it's going to be very different for each one of us, is it not? There'll be some of you that might take days to do it. I'd love it. It'd be great. We should do it one day. It'd be fun. So it's a very different thing. And I think that is the perfect analogy for us saying to someone who's suffering or struggling, the Bible says do this, the Bible says don't do that. We've all got to do it, or not do it, depending on the command. Whether it's a six-day hobbling through a marathon thing where we have to find places to sleep midway through and we take five months to recover afterwards, or whether it's just something we do in the mornings before we get up and it's no big deal. And I, I don't like it when in churches people will turn to someone who's in the midst of suffering. And yes, I'm speaking about the biblical counseling movement that is so wonderful in so many ways. When people will look at the text and say, well, the text just says to do this. 
Because for them, it's easy. And they just, all the text says this. I just do this. My mom just does this. My friends just do this. Just do this. Without realizing that it's the equivalent of saying to someone who's walking with a walking stick and who hasn't traveled a mile on foot for years, go and run a marathon. There has to be empathy for the suffering. There has to be. But at the same time, that empathy cannot lead us to say, you are excused. You are not. We are not. We are never excused. If somebody cuts you up in traffic, you've got to let it go. If somebody murders your kid, you have to let it go. It's not the same thing. It's completely different. But the commands of Scripture are the same. Do we understand the point I'm making? I hope we do. I hope we do. I want this church to be a church of the Bible who loves the Word, but I want it to be a church of empathy as well. And not only do I think that the two aren't mutually exclusive, I think you can't be the former unless you're the latter. And so, when Christ suffered, he didn't sin. And so I, I give all, that, all those caveats, and I know it's a lot, but I just want to make sure that we are on the same page as to how we will distinguish ourselves as a church. But we will distinguish ourselves as individuals by not making excuses to sin. And I understand that there are circumstances in your lives that make it ridiculously difficult for you to do things that I might find ridiculously easy. And that's fine, because the same is true the other way around as well. There are sins that you might struggle with that I don't struggle with. There are things that I look at your life and I say, come on, why can't you just get this? It's easy. But if you were to see my life, you'd say exactly the same. We are not here to beat the sinners. We're here to lift each other up and to carry each other through. But one way we do that is by not excusing sin. We are not loving when we excuse sin. We are hurting people. And so, everything that follows, follows in that foot, in that in that summary, he committed no sin. Specifically, it says, neither was there no deceit, no guile in his mouth. So when Jesus was going through the passion, when he went through Gethsemane, he went through the trial, and he went to the cross, nothing he said wasn't true. How easy it is for us to lie. To lie when we're suffering. To say, oh, well, you know, if I didn't do that, then this or that might happen. And there's always an excuse. And by the way, the, one of the easiest ways to lie in the midst of suffering is exaggeration. You know how it is. Do you know, some of the most, and I'm not even joking, you know, again, <laughs> here's an open book of how we struggle with different things. But for me, mentally, sometimes dealing with bureaucracy with a large company through a telephone have been some of the hardest times of my life. That sounds pathetic, but honestly, oh, just all my buttons at once. I've wept. I've just, I've wept and I've wept through a telephone call trying to get some sense of humanity from a person at the other end to deal with a situation that has a huge impact on my life and none on theirs. And you know the one thing I always want to do when I'm trying to get this person to do something that is perfectly reasonable, perfectly right, and simply requires a touch of a button that they can do really easily that will completely screw up my life negatively if they don't. The easiest way to try and make that happen is to exaggerate. Isn't it? I bet you've done it, a few of you. And you know, uh, good, some amens. Um, but this is it. We are all prone to saying things that aren't true. Now, we all know where we're going with this. We've got the text before us. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about marriage, right? I have never, ever counseled anyone in marriage where there hasn't been a huge amount of exaggeration. 
And I'm not even saying it's intentional. Because what it is, is you become hyper-focused on the sins of the other person, you know? In fact, um, when you get a couple who are on the brink of divorce, then what so often happens in Christian circles is that one partner will say to you, do you know what, I'm not even sure they're, pardon me, I'm not even sure they're a Christian anymore. They've done this, they live like that, they treat me this way, I'm not even sure that they're saved. And then you speak to the other person and they'll say, what can I tell you? They do this and they do that and I'm not even sure that they're saved. And honestly, I don't think either one of them are trying to mislead me. I think what happens is that you have people who are so hyper-focused on the sins of another that it's gotten to the point where this person that they should be seeing, we're going to deal with this in chapter 3 and verse 7, a co-heir of grace, they're seeing as they're trying to label an unbeliever simply because they've focused on their bad behavior. Listen, let's make a commitment here. When we suffer, nothing we say will be untrue. That is the number one way, or number two, if you want to have the general, don't commit a sin, but you want to be on the specifics, the way in which we distinguish ourselves as Christian is when somebody comes and treats us badly, when we suffer at the hands of whomever it may be, we will always speak the truth. And I tell you, this is particularly difficult. When the other person, be it an authority, be it a spouse, be it someone at work, when the other person seems equally committed to lying through their teeth, to exaggerate everything about you and to say negative things about you. They brought in a whole bunch of people at the trial of Jesus to tell lies about him just simply for the purpose that they could kill him. And yet, there was no deceit from his mouth at all. When someone says things about you that isn't true, and you're going to turn around and you're going to say, look, that's not true. And maybe even say something good about that person. That's what distinguishes you as a Christian. Right there. When your boss at work speaks badly of you, everybody else at work, when that happens to them, they're going to speak badly of their boss. You don't. And you are distinguished. And that's what Christ did, and that's what we do. It's so simple, and yet so hard. What's next? Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We live in an era of ad hominems. We live in an era where you say something to someone, they don't like your argument, they don't like the, the thing that you're saying, they disagree with your opinion, and so you're a stinky ninking poop. Or, you know, something stronger, perhaps. But, you know, everybody, you know, everybody is this. My goodness, I see this daily. I have on my social media feeds a great number of friends, some of them so far to the left and some so far to the right. And it seems that the further you go in either direction, the more that you love ad hominems. And everybody has to insult the person rather than deal with the, the actual issue they supposedly disagree with. We're just in an era of, of you know, jabs and jibes and put-downs. and It's epidemic. I've not, it's, it's, we've gone into ridiculous proportions. Jesus did not only not lie, but he didn't even revile. What's the difference between lying and reviling? Very, very simple. If Jesus, at the time of his trial and crucifixion, if he'd said to them, oh, you mock me now, but you will see who I am, and your knee will bow, and your tongue will confess, and you will be judged. Is any of that untrue? Not one word of it. That is 100% biblically true. And yet, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
there is a huge problem in our church circles. That is Christians thinking that because what they've said is accurate, that it's okay. It's not. And I'm guilty. And you probably are too. Just because you can say, God will judge you, you will bow the knee, doesn't mean that you choose to say that when you can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what it means by reviling. When we are hurt, everything within us wants to put that person down. When someone is harsh to us, when someone is, is a, you know, gives us grief, is, treats us bitterly, when someone is, is, is vile to us, or sometimes worse, to our family, then everything within us wants to respond in kind. I don't care how you justify it. I don't care if you play the family card. I don't care if you say it's true. That is the golden opportunity for us to distinguish ourselves as Christians by loving and by blessing and by speaking good. And it, it is so hard and it is so difficult and it is so unearned and undeserved. But aren't we thankful for the mercy that has been shown to us? <laughs> I mean, how can someone who professes Christ with a straight face say, but they deserve that? <laughs> are we, are we, are we going to run a campaign for God to give people what they deserve? Let's be really clear about this. Four people commit the same sin. Two of them are condemned to hell and two of them are forgiven. Is God just with two and unjust with two? No, God's just with all four. God's just merciful with two. We are the recipients of mercy. Our lives, our existence, our very breath is God's mercy in action. Everything that I have, everything good in me, everything good given to me, everything that I cherish, everything that I value is because of the mercy of God. So I have no place and no basis to ever mutter anything on the lines, along, along the lines of, that's not what this, that this person doesn't deserve this. What an affront to the gospel. And so when we suffer, we do not revile. And the third specific here, and the fourth statement, when he suffered, he did not threaten. It seems when you talk about reviling, an almost an unnecessary distinctive, but I am going to be referencing back to this. And I'm tell I'll tell you this now, two weeks' time, three weeks' time, wives and husbands, these are the questions we're going to be asking ourselves. When your spouse treats you in a way that is unbiblical and ungodly and unfair and unjust and even abusive, are we going to deceit, deceive, speak deceit? Are we going to revile and are we going to threaten? And I'm going to deal with each of those specifics as we come and we look at specific situations. This is where it gets real, isn't it? This is where it gets real. Because in that kind of situation of conflict, all we want to do is exaggerate. All we want to do is speak back in the way that we've been spoken to. And all we want to do is, is to threaten. And that can look very different in husbands and wives, but nonetheless, threatening is threatening. The D word in a marriage should never be mentioned. We'll talk more about that next time. But that is a classic example of threatening in marriage. And I just, I think that these specifics, and this is what I was saying at the start of the section, he could have taken 
anything from Isaiah 53. A whole bunch of things. And what he has specifically chosen is these things because these are the things that we tend to do when we're treated badly. And this is how we are going to distinguish ourselves by not doing them. How on earth are we going to do that? Well, look at the last thing on the list. There's three specifics. There's a general one first, no sin. And there's a general one at the end. So it's either, it's either number five if you're counting that way or, or just a summary at the end. But here's the key thing. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen, a Christian who suffers day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, without sin, without deceit, without reviling, and without threatening, is not a doormat. They are not someone who is weak. They are not someone who needs to have a bit of self-respect and free themselves from toxic environments. They are someone who clearly, abundantly, and exposing to the entire world, look at someone who trusts in God. That's what they're doing. Do you see how different that is to our culture? Do you understand how radical a message this is? That everybody in our culture, and quite frankly, so many within Christian circles, are saying, oh, look at this, look at that, flee, 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 have some self-respect, flee, flee, flee. You don't want to be treated this way again, flee, flee, flee. And what does the text say? The text says, entrust yourself to God. We, are we going to follow in the footsteps of Christ? who at any moment could have called down all the armies of heaven to free him and to take him down from the cross, and yet he suffered silently. Why? For us. And what are we going to do when we suffer? When we go through ridiculous suffering, crazy suffering, enduring suffering, extended suffering, what are we going to do? We're going to not sin, and we're going to trust God why? Because God judges justly. You see, this isn't a general trusting of God, guys. This is a very specific trusting of a very specific attribute of God's character. Okay? It is this. That when all is said and done, when this world has come to an end, when Christ returns... Everything that needs to be done will be done. Every person that needs to be judged will be judged. That justice will be served and that God will be proven to be just in each and every circumstance. If you don't believe that, you won't be able to do this. When you experience death, when you experience cancer, when people abuse you or your loved ones, you need to trust that God will judge justly. And quite frankly, one of the hardest times to do that is when it's a Christian. Because you think, well, I'm going to trust God to judge them. But hold on a second, all their sins are forgiven by Jesus. That's not okay. They still need to, to, to have some sort of punishment. They still need to, to suffer in some way. And then we realize that we're rejecting the gospel. The gospel that we so dearly love to be applied to us. We don't want to be applied to other people. And the disgusting sin of our heart becomes evident and clear. We need to trust, no matter how horrendous circumstances might be, that God will deal with everything correctly. And I bet at this moment, just like me, you're thinking about the things in your life 
that you don't see justice in still, but don't seem fair still, or are simply things that are not one individual has done, but you believe because you believe in a sovereign God. You're like, God, I just don't get why you would have let that happen. Trust yourself to the God that judges justly. It is pointless us talking about faith in Jesus and seeking a life of comfort and carefree existence. This, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I'm going to have to rush this more than I'd like, but it's an important point. And maybe by going more quickly, we'll see the point rather than deal with all the... I mean, these two of the richest verses, and there's so much here. But let's look at how it's used in the flow of the passage and in the context specifically. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is a great text for a gospel presentation, but that's not what I'm doing here. He tells us specifically why. Jesus died for our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we got a get out of jail free card. He did not die on the cross so that we could go about and live our lives however we like and then when it comes to that day we can suddenly pull out our card and say I went forward on an altar call on the 11th of December, you know, 1975, and therefore I'm good, right? Trusted in the blood of the Lamb. I said the prayer, sang the song. Stamped by the local evangelist. That's not what being a Christian is. Christianity is not being free from the final punishment for sin. Christianity is about being dead to sin. And living in righteousness. And what he's doing in this context is he's saying, all those things that I've just been through with you that sound so ridiculous, that seem so hard, and you're like, how on earth am I going to be able to do this? Jesus died so you could do this. The very purpose of him dying was so that you would be free from sin, so that you could live this way, that you could distinguish yourself, and that God could be glorified. He did not save you so that you would be okay. He did not save you because he thought that you were really sweet and he wouldn't want you to miss out on all the glory to come. He saved you so that when you do this, God receives glory. It's about him, it's not about you. And that's the point of this wonderful text that says so many other things. But that's the point of it in this context. So when he says, by his wounds you were healed... It's not something, it's not a, a verse that could be, should be abused by, by, you know, fake faith healers. But rather this is saying something far more profound. He's saying that there is healing for your wounds. Now, I'm going to see this on, in two ways. Broadly speaking, the wounds would be our sins. And that there is spiritual healing in that we can live the right way through the enablement of the Holy Spirit through the death of Christ. But I don't think that the choice of words and the choice of quotation from Isaiah 53 is by accident here. I think what Peter is saying is that when you suffer, you have wounds. That's the context, isn't it? The context is suffering. And what does suffering bring? Wounds. Physical wounds, mental wounds, emotional wounds, all sorts of wounds. Hey, it's almost like Peter's saying there are victims. But he says, but by his wounds, the wounds of Christ, his suffering, you're now healed. He has suffered so that you can go through this suffering in the way that he did. It, if you think that Christianity is about God doing these wonderful things so that you don't suffer. By his wounds, we're healed. We don't have to be sick. We don't have to have hard times. We don't have to have difficulties. No, 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 no. 
The gift of God is not to take suffering away. The gift of God is to make you a man or a woman of God. That when the storms and the darkness blows in, you say, okay, no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threatening. I don't want this, but let's do this, Jesus. That's what his wounds do for you. That is the gift of God for you. For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'm out of time. I could explain to you how this is specifically referring Isaiah 53 to the remnant of Israel. Peter's writing to a predominantly Jewish congregation. Therefore, he's speaking to them as the remnant of Israel. We could talk about all the theological distinctives. But the point you need to hear is this. That the way in which this is going to be done is not by saying, All right, I got this. Bring it on. The way you're going to do this is getting on your knees and saying, I can't do this. You are my shepherd. You are my ultimate pastor, my overseer. You have enabled me to do this. By your blood, by your strength, by your empowering Holy Spirit, I can do this, not in me, but in you. I can do this because you died so that I could do this. You died so that you would do this through me. This is going to be the power of your cross in my life right now. I wish that none of us would have to suffer. Truly I do. I've seen far too much of it. I don't want to see another ounce of it in my life. But we are going to. Can we make this commitment to walk as disciples of Jesus? Not to sin, not to deceive, not to revile, not to threaten. To trust ourselves to God who will judge justly. Can we understand that Christ has died so that we can do that? And may we commit ourselves to turn to him. And though the tears stream down our face, and though we might, in desperation and pain, we nonetheless will walk the walk that he has walked before us. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we haven't done this. Forgive us for the deceit the reviling the threatening forgive us that we used our lives and our circumstances as an excuse for sin forgive us for not trusting you forgive us for having our eyes on our on our situation and not on you Forgive us for forgetting how big, how mighty, how holy, how wonderful, and how trustworthy that you are. Though we've stumbled, lift us back up, we pray. Thank you that your cross has empowered us to live this way. And God, give us the joy. Give us the joy, not of a relieving of our suffering, but give us the joy of somebody asking us for the hope that is in us. Why is it that you behave this way? May we truly be different. For your glory, we pray. Amen.